0: What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's November 16, 1957, in the small town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. The town is more quiet than usual. It's the beginning of deer season, and many of the residents have gone hunting. So no one immediately notices that Bernice Wharton is missing. Later that evening, Bernice's son, Frank, returns to town and visits his mother's hardware store. He finds that the lights are left on, but there is no one inside. The cash register is open and there are bloodstains on the floor. Alarmed, Frank alerts the authorities. Plainfield Police inspect Warden's store and come across the last sales receipt. It is written for a local named Ed Gein. Police go straight to the Gein home, a two-story, white-frame farmhouse sitting on 150 acres of land. The resident is a 51-year-old bachelor and a recluse. In other words, unassuming. But police never would have predicted what they would find behind the doors of his farmstead.
1: One of them turned on his flashlight and beamed it around and saw this object that was hanging from the rafters, which at first they thought was some kind of gutted deer. They realized to their incredible horror that it was a woman's corpse that was hanging by its heels.
0: And it didn't stop there. Hidden inside the rural farmhouse was a trove of human remains curated by Gein, It was a house of horrors.
2: There was a lampshade made of human skin. They found that the remains of 12 human heads, gloves made out of the the skin from a corpse's fingers.
0: The grisly discovery on the Gein farm was unfathomable to a small Midwestern town, let alone 1950s America. The citizens of Plainfield couldn't believe that a ghoul
3: had been living amongst them this whole time. You think of this happening, you know, now, it'd still be shocking. But back then, in a small, tiny, rural community, it was breathtaking. This is What Makes a Killer, a
0: 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Notoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Ed Gein, the butcher of Plainfield. Ed Gein was born in La Crosse County, Wisconsin, in August 1906. Harold Schechter is the author of Deviant, the shocking true story of Ed Gein.
1: Well, the Gein family moved to Plainfield from La Crosse, Wisconsin, partly because uh, the mother of the family, the matriarch, Augusta, had decided that La Crosse was a kind of Sodom and Gomorrah like hellhole, uh, and she didn't want her children to be corrupted by all the immoral influences of the big city. Needless to say, La Crosse was not a particularly big city, but they moved to a remote farmhouse about six miles west of. You wouldn't necessarily say downtown Plainfield because there was no uptown Plainfield.
0: Plainfield resident Max Harrington says it was a pretty modest town.
1: It's uh,
4: not the largest city in the state of Wisconsin, but it's plenty big enough for those of us that live here.
1: Plainfield was a very remote, isolated, featureless little village. A state guidebook at the time described it as totally nondescript. The population was very small, uh, never more in its history, I think, than seven or 800 people. You know, probably the entire population of the village could have fit into a New York City apartment building.
0: The family lived on a 150-acre farm. It was located in a quiet scrub oak area with a creek where some residents would fish. Growing up on the farm, Gein was under strict rules set by his austere mother. Young Gein was hardly allowed to leave the property or socialize with other children. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley and Harold Schechter say his mother's piety led to Gein's isolation.
2: His mother, Augusta, is a very domineering character indeed. She is a devout Christian, and she has some very extreme ideas about sin and about morality, and she drums into her sons that they're not to socialize with anybody outside of the family because all of the the people around them in the local town are, are sinners, they're evil, all the women are whores, and so she creates this very insular family environment where they're quite isolated from the rest of the community, and that has a really significant impact on them.
1: Gein seemed to have been very friendless whenever he would make some kind of friend. On those rare occasions, when he would try to make a school friend and bring home a school friend, uh, the mother would immediately find some reason to disapprove of the other child and forbid Ed from ever bringing him home. So he grew up again. Uh, in a state of complete social isolation.
0: Gein's relationship with his mother was complicated enough. As for his father, George...
1: Well, the father, George, uh, was an alcoholic. He appeared to have been somewhat free in his use of uh, physical punishment. But mostly the picture that emerges of George is of, a, you know, kind of a hapless individual who was, as all three male members of the family were, under the thumb of his wife. And again, who was regarded as much as anything else as a sort of Obstacle or impediment to the household.
0: As Gein entered adolescence, his life became even more insular.
2: He dropped out of school when he was around about 12 or 13 to work on the family's farm. And he was considered to be a bit of an oddball. He was quite a loner and he enjoyed quite solitary pursuits. So he really quite liked reading and was quite a prolific reader. So he was somebody who didn't really fit in, but worked incredibly hard to, to keep the family farm going.
0: Gein remained on the family farm well into adulthood. On April 1, 1940, George died of heart failure, leaving the 33-year-old Gein, his brother Henry, and Augusta alone on the farm.
1: Ed's older brother Henry seemed to have freed himself a little more emotionally and psychologically from Augusta's dominance and even apparently on a couple of occasions expressed some criticism of their mother and the hold she was exerting over both of them. So Ed, who at least on a conscious level, worshiped his mother and saw her as a kind of goddess who could do no wrong, appears to have been both a little shocked, you know, that Henry would find any cause to criticize Augusta and possibly built up some kind of animosity toward Henry for that attitude.
0: Occasionally, Gein would leave his home, doing odd jobs around Plainfield. He worked as a handyman to help with living expenses on the farm. Max Harrington remembers his exchanges with Gein.
4: We used to see Ed occasionally. I'd see him around town, and then uh, he was always... um, A friendly person, quiet, friendly, Uh, usually had a joke to tell. He uh, always had time to say hello and ask after how you were. A person who you would never suspect of anything other than being a decent sort of person. In May
0: 1944, another death would befall the Gein family, but under more suspicious circumstances. Dean and Henry found themselves combating a brush fire on their farmland that had gotten out of control.
1: Ed and Henry were out there trying to put out the fire, and uh, they got separated, and Ed could not locate Henry, and he went and got help, but then after getting this help, he led the other people directly to where Henry's body lay, and there were some mysterious bruises on Henry's head. Anyway, the official verdict of the medical examiner was that Henry had died of a heart attack while fighting this fire and had injured his head when he fell and hit a rock. But afterwards, when Gein's crimes were uncovered, there was a lot of talk that perhaps uh, Henry had been a victim of Ed's, that Ed, in fact, had killed Henry partly because of Henry's criticism of Augusta.
0: Augusta lost her husband, and now she had lost a son. The impact took a toll on her, and she had a stroke.
1: Evidence seems to suggest that with the other two men out of the way, Ed reveled in having his mommy alone to himself.
0: But Gein's mother never really recovered from her stroke. Their time alone together only lasted for 19
1: months, Ed nursed her very, very diligently, even apparently would get into bed with her on occasion and stroke her and comfort her. Uh, And then she seemed to recover, but then she suffered another, this time, fatal stroke.
0: Augusta Gein died on December ninth, 1945. The loss devastated Gein, who was now 39 years old. At the funeral... Gein reportedly wailed like a child. Some have speculated that his mother's domineering nature may have stunted his emotional development.
1: The death of his mother uh, left him completely, completely isolated, you know, living in this increasingly ramshackle, dilapidated farmhouse that he ceased to take care of whatsoever. Augusta was his only real human contact. So it was at that point, you know, that Gein embarked on these various outrages that would ultimately make him this notorious figure in American crime.
0: Gein was accustomed to being isolated from society, but now he was utterly alone. The death of his mother caused him to spiral out of control. Over the next 12 years, he became obsessed with recreating the world he had shared with his mother.
2: I think that the real tipping point for Ed Gein was when his mother and his brother died, because even though this family was very intense and and rather extreme in its beliefs, it was still a check on his behavior. There was still that informal surveillance over him, and I think that kept him contained, but once he was on his own, he was free to ruminate and fantasize, and his behavior was only going to escalate.
1: You know, it's like some crack opened up, You know, in the civilized part of his head and all this weird, archaic stuff going back to the days, you know, when our species did engage in these bizarre, unspeakable rituals, you know, flooded out and took possession of him.
0: Despite the turmoil festering inside Gein, to outsiders, he was calm and composed. When he left the farm, albeit rarely, he was quiet and polite.
4: One of my summer jobs uh, when I was a student in high school was mowing the cemetery. And we would see Ed out there uh, on occasion. He'd come out, and if he saw us working, he'd always come over and and say hello. And and again, sometimes have this little story to tell. And he he was very good about stopping and see his mother's grave.
1: I think neighbors saw him as an odd, very meek, somewhat simple-minded, Person, but one who was always willing to pitch in when some farm work needed to be done or some chore needed to be run for them. Uh, but they, of course, had no sense of the life that he was pursuing inside that incredibly creepy, dismal world of his own farm.
0: It was a world that Gein had managed to keep hidden away until one day in 1957.
1: November sixteenth, 1957 was the first uh, day of deer hunting season that year, and it was a day when basically the entire male population of the town would have been out in the woods hunting deer, as Ed knew. Ed drove into town to the Warden Hardware Store. The Warden Hardware Store was owned by a woman named Bernice Warden. I knew Mrs. Warden quite well. She and her family ran
4: the hardware store here for many years. Almost everybody in the community knew Mrs. Warden.
1: Ed had kind of been hanging around the store for a couple of weeks previously. Uh, He had developed something of an obsession with Bernice Warden.
2: He would talk to her, um, he would ask her out, and it it was quite clear that she, she really wasn't that interested in him.
1: Ed came in, asked to buy a half a gallon of antifreeze, which Bernie Swarden poured out for him and wrote out a receipt. He went back out to his truck, then came back inside and asked her to see a rifle that was in the window. When Bernie Swarden turned her back to him, he shot her in the back of the head. And then loaded her corpse in his truck and drove back to his farm.
0: Gein had murdered the 58-year-old woman in broad daylight in her own shop.
4: It was deer season, so deer season, is like a ghost town around here. Everybody, in those days especially, everybody was out hunting, and she wasn't even missed for quite a, for some hours.
1: Later that day, Frank Warden returned from the woods and found the store empty. His mother wasn't there. He was very perplexed by that, and then he saw a trail of blood uh, across the floor of the hardware store and not only realized, you know, that some foul play had occurred, but immediately suspected Ed Gein because Gein had been kind of bothering his mother for the past few weeks.
0: And there was one piece of evidence that confirmed Frank Wharton's suspicions to the police.
3: Forensic psychologist
0: Helen Morrison picks up the story.
3: When they went to search the place, they found the receipt For the antifreeze that was in Ed's name. And they just worked backwards, saying that he was probably the last person to see her alive, but they didn't suspect that he was as deranged as he was.
1: One set of lawmen went out in search of Gein. They found him having dinner at a neighbor's house, and they arrested him. And then another set of lawmen went out to Gein's farmhouse, uh, and that's where they made these discoveries that really sent shockwaves around the world.
0: On that dark November night, officers from the Plainfield Police Department began to search the Gein Farm for Bernice Warden.
1: They couldn't get into the house, uh, so they went around back and entered into what was called uh, the summer kitchen, which was a little shed outside.
2: This property didn't have any electricity, so they were pretty much fumbling around in the dark with, with flashlights, but I don't think they expected to find what, what they did find there.
1: One of them turned on his flashlight and beamed it around and saw this object uh, that was hanging from the rafters, uh, which at first they thought was some kind of gutted deer. Uh, they realized to their incredible horror that it was a woman's corpse, that was hanging by its heels and been completely gutted.
0: It was the body of Bernice Warden.
2: She'd been strung up, essentially, and and she was slit from her her sternum to her, her pelvis. So she'd essentially been butchered by Ed.
1: The
0: mutilated body terrified the officers.
1: And of course, both of them just stumbled out in horror and vomited, you know, at the sight of this thing.
0: After collecting themselves, the police officers moved their search from the shed into the main house to find that...
2: He boarded up some areas of the family's home to to maintain the rooms as his mother had left them. And in other parts of the property, he just started hoarding things. You know, you would have trash and and rubbish build up, and it it really became a a complete hovel.
1: Instead of taking all his garbage to the dump, would go to the dump and bring it into his house. It was just this incredible chaos of trash and garbage.
0: But there was more than just household waste. It was a ghastly tableau.
1: Amid all that wreckage, they discovered these uh, incomprehensible, unspeakably awful objects that had been fashioned out of human body parts. There were chairs that were upholstered in human flesh.
2: There was a lampshade made of human skin. They found that the remains of 12 human heads, gloves made out of the, the skin from a corpse's fingers.
1: There was a jar containing human noses. There was a box full of female genitalia, some of which had been painted and tied with ribbons. There was a belt fashioned out of female nipples. There was a shade pole made of human lips.
3: they found all types of things that belonged to people that were no longer people. And it was shocking. I mean, you think of this happening, you know, now, it's still be shocking, but back then in a small, tiny rural community, it was absolutely, it was breathtaking.
1: Ed Skeen's farmhouse was the habitation of a literal ghoul. You know, somebody who had been living amidst these horrific relics of human dismemberment. It was a madhouse.
0: Gein's fascination with death and corpses seemed to have amplified ever since his mother had died 12 years prior.
2: Ed was always enjoyed reading. It was quite a solitary pursuit, so that's not particularly surprising. But after the death of his mother and his brother, he started to read an awful lot more. And his tastes in, in literature really did span quite a, a wide spectrum. He read pornographic magazines. Um, he read medical textbooks. And he developed a particular interest in Ilse Koch, who worked at one of the, the Nazi concentration camps and collected patches of skin of the prisoners who were detained there and I think all of this was was fueling a a very active imagination so he's developing these obsessions and these interests and he's quite skilled as a farmhand at this point in time he knows how to slaughter animals he knows how to prepare carcasses he's from a community that's very much into its hunting and its fishing so at some point reality and fantasy are going to collide
0: as the search of the farmhouse progressed officers found that the grotesque collection of body parts became even more disturbing.
1: Among the most hideous of all the items were uh, human skin masks that were hanging from the wall of his bedroom, the faces of women that had been flayed from the skulls and that had been preserved. Some of them had lipstick applied to them and that had been hung on the walls as decorations. And then, most notoriously, there was a skin suit that Ed had uh, crafted out of the upper torso of a woman and the leggings of a woman. And apparently, as he later confessed, he would put on this skin suit and put on one of the female skin masks and caper around in his yard pretending to be his mother.
0: It was later learned that Gein exhumed bodies from the same cemetery where his mother's body lay.
2: Two years after the death of his mother in 1947, he starts grave robbing. So he's going into to a local burial ground, he's digging up bodies and he's taking things from the bodies. Now he's not taking jewellery or or items of any value, he's actually taking body parts. It really is an absolute house of horrors. So what started off as an interest, which was confined to the pages of a book, has now become a reality behind the doors of this rather bizarre house. So what he's doing in a really grotesque way is trying to bring his mother back to life in in some way, shape or form, because he was just so dependent upon her for a sense of his own identity.
0: With Gein in custody, Officers continued to scour his home. They soon discovered inside a paper bag the severed head of a woman who had been missing from Plainfield for three years.
1: There had been a female tavern keeper named Mary Hogan uh, who ran this roadside tavern outside of Plainfield who had disappeared very, very mysteriously. In those days, we had 18-year-old bars where
4: uh, teenagers could go in and have beer. Uh, and uh, she ran one of those that was a, a kind of a modest place to be very kind. Um, but she disappeared before I was old enough to frequent uh, those establishments.
0: Gein had murdered Mary Hogan in December 1954, three years prior to killing Bernice Worden.
1: I think there was some sense in which he associated her with his mother. You know, she almost seemed to be like the shadow side of his mother. And I think in killing her, again, he was both enacting some kind of homicidal rage toward his mother. But I think also there were times when he just ran out of suitable female corpses and had to make his own.
0: Back at the police station, detectives were trying to get their reclusive Gein to talk.
2: Well, for the first day after his arrest, I think Ed felt like a a bit of a fish out of water. He didn't quite know how to react, but he did start talking after about 24 hours. And the first thing he said was that he wanted an apple pie with a slice of cheese on it. And that really does show the, the emotional immaturity of this guy. And when you've got somebody whose development stops at a particular point, they, they don't develop those complex emotions that enable them to empathize with other people or to think through the consequences of their actions. So what you've got here is a, a teenage boy in a man's body, and he was capable of some, some really terrible things. Gein soon began to open up to investigators.
1: When the police first broke into Gein's house and discovered this crazy mass of body parts, their first assumption was Gein was a serial killer. Uh, It was only during his interrogation that he revealed that they were um, taken from the corpses he had dug up from these local cemeteries. And people, in a way, had a harder time believing that than that he was a serial killer. That seemed like totally beyond the bounds of belief for a whole variety of reasons. I'm not sure he did recognize that what he was doing was wrong. You know, there are some necrophiles who think, Well, I wasn't really hurting anybody. You know, they were dead anyway.
0: Gein finally confessed that between 1947 and 1952, he regularly visited the local cemetery after dark.
1: He would often follow the local newspapers and read the obituaries. And when some middle-aged or elderly woman who bore some vague resemblance to his departed mother, died and was buried, he would apparently go out to the cemetery at night uh, while the soil was still fresh and easily dug up and exhume these coffins and remove uh, the bodies and sometimes take the entire corpse back to his farmhouse, sometimes just take parts of the corpse back to the farmhouse and leave the rest there.
0: Gein claimed that he always went digging into graves when he was in a daze. Investigators decided to dig up some of the graves to see if Gein was telling the truth.
1: When they uncovered them, they discovered that the coffins had been broken into and uh, the bodies were missing or, you know, there were just parts of the skeleton remaining there.
2: He admitted to grave robbing nine corpses, but the maths didn't quite add up because the police had found 12 human heads in, Gein's property, and he'd only admitted to, to 11 offences against separate people. So, so the numbers never really added up properly. So there's always been questions over that.
0: But there was no doubt that Gein had a preference. All the graves he violated belonged to women.
1: I think he was both trying to rebuild his mother But I also think that he was taking revenge on his mother. That kind of love and hate of mommy were manifested, both by his attempting to bring her back from the dead, but also perpetrating, you know, these atrocities on the corpses of female bodies.
0: It is reported that Gein even tried to return Augusta's body to the family home after her funeral.
1: There's some indication that he initially tried to exhume his mother's corpse. You know, apparently Ed missed the presence of his mother so much. You know, he wanted to bring her back and somehow, in his madness, you know, reconstitute her uh, in his household. Uh, He couldn't get to his mother's grave because uh, the soil in that part of Wisconsin is very sandy. uh, And many coffins are buried within concrete vaults to prevent the sand from collapsing on them. And that was apparently true of uh, of Augusta Gein.
0: When Ed Gein's home was searched in 1957, the police uncovered a gothic house of horrors. As well as the remains of two missing local women, they found an array of human bones, skulls, and skin that had been fashioned into furniture and clothing, the town of Plainfield was stunned. Resident Max Harrington remembers the effect Gein had on the rural town.
4: I think shock would be the biggest thing that we could use to describe the atmosphere in the community. You know, we were still pretty much a, a clannish community at that time when a lot of the families that were here had always been here. It took your breath away. You know, you, just, you know, just It was shocking. And it still is. People don't do things like that in a small town on a, on a normal day. That's just not part of what we grew up with.
0: In November 1957, Gein was charged with the murder of Bernice Warden. His indictment shocked those who knew Gein.
4: When I heard of his arrest, um, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was sure they had the wrong person because it just didn't seem like anything that they were, they were telling us uh, was the Ed that we all knew. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, It was a Saturday night. We were at a dance, and the story went through there, and everybody said, I don't believe it. But it was true.
0: The media quickly descended on the tiny town of Plainfield, Wisconsin.
2: Well, the cultural context of the Gein case is quite an interesting one because I think this was one of the first cases that gathered an awful lot of attention. There was a media circus that developed around this because... Nothing like this had, had ever really happened before. It was something completely new.
1: It spread very quickly through the local newspapers, you know, and then through the Associated Press and so on to the national media. Uh, Plainfield, which, you know, had always existed from the time of its founding and happy obscurity, you know, suddenly found itself to be the center of national and even international attention.
0: It would now be down to the courts to decide whether or not Ed Gein was responsible for his actions. A 1957 Wisconsin paper detailed how Gein held up shaking, red-gloved hands to his face and confessed to killing Bernice Warden. He said he didn't remember actually killing her, but that he did remember hanging her from her heels and butchering her in his woodshed because he thought he was dressing out a deer. Like his nightly graveyard lootings, Gein said he was in a daze when he killed Mrs. Worden. On November 21, 1957, 51-year-old Ed Gein pled not guilty by reason of insanity at his arraignment at Washera County Court. It was declared that he was unfit to stand trial.
1: Their indication that Ed was clinically psychotic, that he had hallucinations, that he heard voices, or the trees would start talking to him. Most serial murderers are not psychotic, but Ed seemed to have the symptoms of some form of psychosis.
0: Gein was sent to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Wapin, Wisconsin. But in Plainfield, the community was still trying to recover. As news of Gein's atrocious crimes spread worldwide, the shadow of Ed Gein continued to linger over the town.
4: It was a, a, just a, an exasperating time, and then we were inundated by nosy Nellies that uh, all thought that, boy, i got to go drive by that old farmhouse. And uh, then we became a, I don't like to use the word chaotic, but a very uh, unsettled
1: community for a while. Plainfield was suddenly famous, and famous for the most horrifying of reasons, you know, that it was the home of America's most notorious psychopath.
0: The quiet Midwestern town soon became a dark tourist attraction. People far and wide wanted to visit the hometown of the Butcher of Plainfield.
2: In 1958, the property that, that Gein had lived in was, was due to be auctioned off, and I think the last thing that local people wanted was for this to become some kind of shrine, some kind of attraction for people who were morbidly fascinated. So a few days before the auction, the, the property was, was burned to the ground, essentially. A
4: lot of talk of arson. The um they had been cleaning up around there and had been burning trash up around the uh, that that particular day too, so then that was or anyway that was an excuse of a possible cause that maybe the wind got something uh, in the evening and got some live embers in there. A lot of the neighbors weren 't too happy with having talk of it being turned into a museum of uh, sorts and, but that, was, that there was there were a lot of stories. Anyway, it's gone. People still kept coming, though. Even after the house was gone for a year, it still had people coming to drive by the empty lot where the house used to stand.
0: In March 1958, the car which Gein used to transport the bodies of his victims was sold. It was bought at an auction for over $700 by a carnival operator. He used the car as a morbid sideshow charging people 25 cents for a photograph.
2: I think what we're seeing here is the rise of the serial killer consumer culture. People are fascinated in these kind of cases, and some criminologists refer to this as wound culture, that we're essentially drawn to the trauma and the suffering of other people, and we're drawn to the artifacts that that exist around these cases.
0: Gein remained in the Central State Hospital for 11 years. Then, doctors determined that he was finally fit to stand trial for the first-degree murder of Bernice Worden. The trial lasted for a week, and on November 14, 1968, Judge Robert Golmer had reached a verdict.
1: He was tried and found guilty of the murder of Bernice Worden, but then he was judged insane and stuck back on the mental institution.
2: I think that was possibly somewhere where he may have thrived because he had structure, he had a routine, he had people watching over him and looking after his needs.
0: Forensic psychologist Dr. Helen Morrison interviewed Gein during his time at the hospital. The Gein she encountered in the hospital was in stark contrast to the monster she
3: had heard so much about. I was working at that time as a staff psychiatrist. And I was covering uh, all the units. And when I was asked to go over to see this person, uh, I went over to see it and I saw Ed Gain. He was not at all coherent. He was such a little person um, that I found it hard to picture him as the person who would committed all these homicides. He lived there very peacefully. He never caused any problems, never had any, any type of behavioral thing, no type of, 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 I guess you could say, consequence for bad behavior. On July 26, 1984,
0: Ed Gein died of lung cancer. He was 77. He was buried next to his mother in the Gein family plot the same cemetery he desecrated during the height of his gruesome years. Max Harrington would prefer that people move on from Plainfield's grisly past.
4: We really wouldn't care to have that be our claim to fame. You know, we've uh, turned out lots of doctors and uh, architects and and some really good people out of our schools here. We're very proud of them. We'd rather be known for a, a tremendously good population than to be credited for only one issue.
0: Unfortunately, Gein's crimes have left a lasting impact on the small town. Just like the carnival operators of the 1950s, people driven by morbid curiosity still try to get their hands on Gein-related souvenirs.
2: In the year 2000, uh, somebody was found to be selling parts of the the gravestone that had been erected at, at Ed Gein's grave.
1: They keep putting up headstones, and the headstones keep disappearing. There's a whole category of collectible that has come to be known as murderabilia, and Gein relics are particularly prized among people who collect that kind of morbid relic.
0: It's been over 60 years since Gein's horrific crimes, and he has only grown in infamy into a figure in American folklore, a killer of almost mythic proportions. His legacy has inspired films, books, and music.
1: At the time the Gein crimes were being revealed in the press, there was a writer of pulp horror named Robert Bloch who had moved to Wisconsin to be with his wife's family. And at some point when Gein was being interviewed by various psychiatrists, all these headlines in the papers were trumpeting the fact that Gein had been motivated by these deranged, edible conflicts, you know, that he was this desperately sick mama's boy, you know, who was perpetrating these atrocities on middle-aged women, you know, who reminded him of his mother. And uh, this caught the attention of Robert Bloch, who decided this could potentially make the basis of a a good horror novel, and that became the book Psycho. In the book Psycho, uh, Norman Bates, actually, after he's arrested, compares himself at the end of the book to Ed Gein, so the connection is made very, very explicit there in the book. Uh, anyway uh, psycho as we know became turned into one of the great classic horror movies of american cinema
0: but gene's crimes were very real he was a man with an unhealthy obsession with his mother who murdered two women and created a collection of gruesome keepsakes in his house of horrors
1: we think of gene as this notorious American serial murderer, but in many ways he doesn't really fit that profile. You know, for example, he he wasn't a sexual sadist in the way John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy were or Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, he wasn't driven by that particular form of deviance.
3: Evil is something that, you know, professionally people don't believe in evil, but I truly believe that he was evil. I think there are people who would like to say that the devil got into him and made him do these awful things, but I think he was born evil.
4: The Ed I knew was not an evil person. He did things that normal people do not do. And there's no, just no doubt about that. And to kill two people is certainly not a person who you would really like to invite to your neighborhood party. But yeah, he was, he was. Uh, there was something in the in his head that uh, didn't click right.
0: Later, a person who had known Gene wrote to Dr. Morrison.
3: I received a letter from one of his neighbors, who used to be a friend of his. Uh, She was a little girl, and she remembers going over to his house, and he would serve soup and everything. What turned out, the soup bowls were the skulls of many of his victims. And people never knew it.
0: What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Booms Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Mavradakis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Creggi and Daniel Birch. Recorded by Greg Cooler at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janal Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the friends and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thank you. on next week's episode of What Makes a Killer. On August 4th, 2002, 10-year-olds Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman disappeared while out buying candy in the sleepy town of Soham, Cambridgeshire. For two weeks, police and locals scoured the area. It was every parent's worst nightmare.
4: There was a sense of real fear and dread in the village. People were starting to get more and more desperate as to what might've happened to these two little girls.
0: Ian Huntley, a local school caretaker, gave an emotional interview to the press, appealing for the safe return of Holly and Jessica.
2: Somebody would have seen or heard something if somebody had tried to get those girls into a car, if it had just been somebody passing through.
0: But in truth, Huntley knew the girls were gone.
2: Huntley was a bomb waiting to explode. All it needed was an opportunity. And on that sunny August afternoon in 2002, he found an opportunity.